Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, before we get to our sermon, I want to ask you to, I want to lift up Christians in China, uh, East Asian people groups that are, um, that know you and are serving you now and are in uh, just a terribly difficult place to be a Christian, Lord, that you would use that context and use that setting and use the, the difficulties and the rigors to refine faith, to strengthen faith, to galvanize faith so that they would be bold for your namesake, Lord, that others would hear about you, your, your greatness, your glory, your son, and that they would be drawn to you, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, uh, that you would bring them into the kingdom, Lord. We ask for our brothers and sisters there that we'll spend eternity with, that right now that they are being faithful. Lord, I pray that they are burdened, that you are putting a burden on their hearts for their neighbors and their workmates and their friends at whatever cost to them, that they would be willing and even eager to share. Lord, we pray too for those that don't know you, that you would draw them. Just open the eyes of their hearts. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for, uh, continue to pray for our little brothers, uh, Everett and Trevor, and uh, just pray that you would uh, just use the treatments or use whatever means necessary to bring healing to their little bodies. We are entrusting two dear little boys to you, knowing that you are a good father, knowing that you hear our prayers, and we are pleading with you for health and recovery and a future uh, here with us, I should say. Lord, we uh, are trusting, entrusting their families to you as well. We just pray that you would give them endurance, uh, that you would uh, sustain them in a way and, uh, and give them peace that can only come from you, sustain them in a way where you can only get the glory, uh, where they would um, just depend deeply on you and trusting you through this season. I pray for the people that are surrounding these families, Lord, this, this church family and brothers and sisters in this community that know these families, that we would be uh, a strong encouragement, that we would be prayer warriors for them and uh, voicing prayers even when they may not be able to, um, lifting them up. Uh, we just a ask you, Lord, to be glorified through these difficult circumstances. Lord, also we want to pray for those who uh, this morning uh, are serving in uh, the military in some uh, fashion, Lord, just want to pray for our service members, uh, for those who know you, Lord, to pray for faithfulness, for uh, boldness as they share Christ in in foxholes and everything in between, uh, foxholes and, and uh, office spaces and all the, the places where these guys serve, Lord, that you would give them a boldness in their faith, that you would draw uh, young people uh, to you through uh, the difficulties and the rigors of uh, military service. We pray for the families that are connected to these service members, Lord, that they would trust you, that they would have a, an otherworldly peace that could only come from you as their loved ones are uh, serving in difficult climes and places. Uh, we are entrusting these folks to you. Lord, uh, lastly this morning, we pray for Chris Myers and Commerce, uh, First Baptist Church Commerce, and for his wife, Kathy. Lord, we're praying for Chris and Kathy this morning. Just pray for, uh, we're praying for worship first and foremost, that Chris is fueled by worship, Lord, that you would guard his heart in Christ Jesus, that he would, uh, that he would enjoy you, that in, the, in the, the, the challenges that he faces in ministry, Lord, that he would be, uh, uh, that his faith would be deepened, his dependence on you would be strengthened, and that uh, in his weakness that you would be uh, on display. I pray that he and his wife, Kathy, are enjoying you as they are serving in commerce, Lord, that they are fueled by worship as they are serving uh, your people at First Baptist Church Commerce. We pray too, Lord, that for their work there in commerce, that you would connect them and connect people who don't know you to them, uh, that you would connect the dots in a way that only you can, where the Holy Spirit is, is stirring and drawing and the Holy Spirit is preaching and sowing, and that those dots would connect so that the kingdom would be advanced in commerce and others would come to know you. Um, Lord, we are entrusting this time to you. I'm uh, Really, really thankful for this window into the Sermon on the Mount this morning. I pray that your people will be encouraged. I pray that they will be um, uh, inspired, that they'll be moved, that they'll be excited, they'll be hopeful, uh, eager even to walk out these wonderful uh, commands in the Sermon on the Mount. We're entrusting this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7. And you can turn there. We're actually not going to be spending... Um, really very much time in the actual text this morning. We will spend some time, um, but we are laying, in some ways, a foundation for understand, understanding and making sense of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we will be in the season of the Sermon on the Mount for who knows how long. 
Um, and one of the things I, I think we're doing last week and this week, there's a difference between reading lyrics and actually hearing a song. You know, I, it's very few songs that I know of that you actually hear the lyrics that you're really stirred. You know, maybe they're especially poetic or especially well-worded or, or something about them really touches you, but it's usually the music and usually the band and usually the people that, that are singing it, that are expressing it, that really give it some oomph and really make it connect. It's the, uh, the singing of it, uh, I think, and the, the playing of it maybe with a band where you're able to hear angst maybe on the part of the singer. You know, maybe it's a, uh, a love song, an unrequited love or something like that. You know, it's, um, you can hear joy in the way it's communicated. You can hear sadness. Uh, some songs you can hear whimsy. You know, a lot of these songs from the 70s that I grew up on are just the weird pinball wizard. I mean, what's going on there? Just whimsy. You know, it's kind of, but you hear it in the singer and in the band. Now, the reason I say that is I think the theology of the Sermon on the Mount is to the Sermon on the Mount what a singer and band are to lyrics. I'm going to say that again because I want you to kind of appreciate what we're doing last week and this week. Theology is to the Sermon on the Mount what a singer and band are to lyrics. I realize when I say theology, there's a, I feel like I'm off center here. I realize when I say theology, um, there's a potential for folks to go, oh, that sounds kind of boring. I, I assure you that if you engage this morning, I don't think it's going to be boring. I think you're going to hear some music, hopefully. I think you're going to hear a band and hear a singer. And this morning, the singer is the inspired uh, singer named Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote in the book of Matthew. And it's also the singer, we could say, is our Lord and Savior as he preached the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago. So I'm hoping today to show you a few things in the book of Matthew and in the Old Testament. We're going to pan out and look at a couple other passages to make sense of the theology of the Sermon on the Mount that I hope will enliven this sermon for you in the coming weeks and months. Okay, That's my hope and prayer. And uh, that in some ways that what we do this morning should um, help the Sermon on the Mount be more than lyrics. Okay, Now, one of the assumptions I'm making this morning as really over these coming weeks, um, but... I bring this, I want to voice this assumption this morning. It's an assumption and it's an expectation. Is that you're actually reading your Bible. That you're actually reading the Sermon on the Mount. In the weeks leading up to where we are right now, I don't know of a week that's gone by. I may have missed one or two weeks in this season. But I think most weeks I send out an email encouraging reading. And specific reading even to prepare you for Sunday morning. Okay, apart from showing up at your house, I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's, 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 an, it's not an un uncommon week for someone to say, hey, man, what's the sermon about this coming Sunday? And I'm like, hey, man, um, check your email. Now, I realize a lot of that, that cross-point email ends up in junk mail. <laughs> I totally get that. In fact, some people say, ah, oh, I found this in junk mail. I'm glad I found it because I needed to read it. So maybe set your, uh, your settings or something where you can actually get email from from Crosspoint, we make a point not to inundate you with, with content, but I send out a reading each week or a reading guide each week to prepare you for what we're doing here on Sunday morning. But even if you don't get email, if you say you don't have a computer, all right, let's just imagine you don't have a computer, okay? I bet you have a Bible. Okay, so here's the charge for like the next coming months. Read Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Just read it. It's not rocket surgery. Don't make it rocket surgery. Okay, don't make it difficult. Just read it and say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to read this thing. If I believe that it is living, that it is active, and it doesn't return void, even if I feel like I'm reading words on a page, okay, even if they feel like dead lyrics, like someone's reading lyrics, the Lord is doing something in you that you don't even realize. So please trust me. It'll be worth your while to read it. And it'll do something for you on Sunday mornings, too. So I'm making the assumption this morning that some of you or most of you, hopefully, uh, and eventually maybe all of you, are reading the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think it's like food to human beings. Reading the Scripture is to being a Christian. I mean, you don't have to tell people to eat, most people. You just know, man, I need to eat. And if you feel lethargic or you, lose, you, know, you don't have any energy, you're like, well, you need to go eat something. Duh. Well, the same is true in the, in the walk, in the, in the spiritual journey. You need to take nourishment, and the nourishment is his word. So that's my encouragement, and my assumption and my expectation is read his word. Now, here's what we're doing this morning. Uh, there's really two parts to the sermon. 
and then the supper. And the supper is really a third part, but I'm kind of breaking it off as a third part and mainly focusing on the first two parts. Here's sort of the layout for the morning. We're going to consider, in making sense of the theology of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to consider the story of the Exodus first. Okay. Secondly, we're going to consider, consider the story of creation. And third, as part of the supper, we're going to consider uh, the new covenant. Okay, so that's the plan for the morning. If you kind of need a little visual outline uh, or a visual, an audible outline, there you go. You can write it down in, in front of you. Exodus first, creation second, and a new covenant third in um, combination with our supper. Okay, so go ahead and put that first slide up for me, Ethan. Now, I made some slides last week. My slide game has improved. For those of you who've been around for a period of time, you know the slide game has improved. And I've actually figured out Google Slides, so they're really easy. And I'm... I haven't really rehearsed how I'm going to handle these slides, so I don't want them to be in the way. I don't want them to be a bother or a distraction, but I think I'll try and refer to them at times to kind of uh, help us have a visual. I like visuals. They help me learn. They help me understand things. I spent most of my life in the church, went off to seminary, had no idea even where the exodus fit in the story, I, much to my shame. So hopefully folks here in our body can have a view of where these stories play out. Okay, we're in this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a little wee little mount right there. Last week, we considered this big circle here of the context and how that factored into what people would have heard on that hillside 2,000 years ago, what they would have brought to the hillside. They would, have, they, they would have carried to that hillside that day a desire to understand how to be happy. That was a contemporary conversation. It was a philosophical conversation. The Greco-Roman virtue ethics was very much a part of that context. And they're asking and answering the question, how do you find happiness? Human flourishing. Okay, wholeness. We brought up the word last week. Shalom. Man, everybody on that hillside, just like everybody in here today, is out for some shalom, right? Is anybody not out for some human flourishing and some happiness and shalom? I know I am. I suspect that we are too, just like that hillside was populated that day, that little wee hillside, with folks that were there wanting to understand how to be happy. They were also there anticipating how are they supposed to live in light of the eschaton, in light of the return of God to dwell with his people. How should that shape their ethic? How should they live then? They should live in a way that's sort of like you're temporary, like you're going to have a different value system. So on that hillside that day, the second temple Judaism would have been very much carried to that hillside and the Greco-Roman virtue ethic. Okay, so we're spending some time this morning figuring out what else might be influencing this, this hillside. Okay, some other things that might help us interpret what goes down on that hillside. Okay, let me just give a quick recap. You go ahead and put my next slide up there, Ethan. I want to give a quick recap of the Exodus. I shared with you much to my shame. I went off to seminary, didn't really know where the Exodus was in the storyline. Okay. I like to use these, these, uh, these lines up here because they kind of help you visualize well, where, where, where does all this stuff play out. And I use a line, uh, or use often when I use this line, I put CF on the line because you're on the storyline. Okay, that, that's an important little point. You're on this storyline. Okay, so this is, you know, if this is a scale, this is 2,000 years, this, is, this is represents the cross, in case anybody's wondering that right there. That's the cross, okay? That's the little hillside, Sermon on the Mount, took place before the cross, Okay, back up 1,500 years. This isn't to scale because that's 2,000 that way. 1,500 years this way to the Exodus. And that's not a hard and fast year. It's a general roundabout. About 1,500 years before Jesus is the story of the Exodus. Now, here's a quick recap on the Exodus. Uh, this family was born in Canaan. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of the sons is beaten up by the brothers. He's kind of a punk. He's sold off into slavery. He finds himself ending up as a slave in Egypt. Okay? And then he eventually finds himself in Pharaoh's court. You know the story likely of Joseph. Joseph's whole family then ends up in a land called Goshen to survive famine in Canaan. They land in this place called Goshen. It's in the rich delta of the Nile in Egypt. And given Joseph's important role, they were a welcome people for a long time. I mean, they're glad you came, Joseph and your family. Or uh, Jacob and your family, and Joseph. Glad you guys are here. But over a course of time, Pharaohs came and Pharaohs went. And then eventually a Pharaoh comes along and says, Joseph who? And also notices how prolific these people are. I mean, they're like rabbits. These guys, man, I cannot believe how they have multiplied. 
In fact, the Pharaoh is saying, hey, man, we got to do something about these guys because they're going to outnumber us and they're going to take Egypt from us. So you know what they did? They put them to work as slaves. And specifically, at least the type of slavery that we're aware of is brick makers. Okay, apparently part of their job was to make bricks with straw over the, you know, the daily grind. They're making bricks with straw. As things got really difficult later on in the Exodus, the straw was taken away. Apparently making bricks without straw is really difficult. I don't really know how that works, but we'll trust that just making bricks in general sounds like slavery and it sounds like a really bad deal. Okay, they're there in Egypt for some 400-something years, probably about 430. We don't know how many of those years they're actually slaves. But here they are, slaves in the land where they initially found refuge. And they're making bricks. And Moses then, this guy who's born, you may remember the story of Moses where he's placed in a wee little tiny ark. And he's launched off into the Nile. He survives the watery ordeal of the Nile. And he's drawn from the water. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. And at some point later, I think he was about 40 years or so old, he, um, he felt like, man, I need to go tend to my people. So he goes, looks in on the Israelites, and he sees a, an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. And he kills the guy, the Egyptian. And then he's in trouble with the, the Egyptian. So then he runs off to the land of Midian. And it's there in Midian that he stands before, what you may know, be familiar with the story, stands before the burning bush. And there, through the burning bush, God tells him, you need to go back to Egypt and lead my people out of Egypt. Okay, so Moses goes back, and through the plagues, you may be familiar with the plagues, uh, these mighty acts of judgment called the plagues that you could really almost think of, think of as like labor pains. A people are born through the travail of the, the last one, the Passover. Okay, they're born and delivered out of Egypt. The armies of Egypt chase them eventually, at least at first. You know, Pharaoh's saying, man, get out of here. The firstborn in every Egyptian home, from the critters to the human beings, are found dead in their cribs on the Passover. It was a gruesome night. You can imagine as they're leaving under the cover of darkness, hearing the wails of Egypt. And at least initially, it's like Pharaoh's like, get out of here. You're killing us. But then he changed his mind later and he chased them down with the armies of Egypt. And you may remember how the story goes. The armies of Egypt drowned in the Red Sea as they tried to catch the people who just crossed on dry ground. You know that story. And from there they made their way to Mount Sinai where God spoke to them from a mountain. Emphasize that again. It would be all weird just for the sake of making a point. They made their way to Mount Sinai after crossing the Red Sea where God spoke to them from a mountain. Now, here's what I aim to do in these next few minutes. In this first part of the sermon is I want to see if we can get into the mind of Matthew. Okay, we believe that Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved to write and record. He didn't make stuff up. He told certain details about the life of Christ to make a point. Okay, we're going to try and get into the mind of Matthew and try and figure out what in the world he's thinking. So turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to come back to the Exodus. You're going to understand, I think, here in a moment what we're doing. We're going to look at passage, a passage in Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> I'll let you turn there because I'd like for you to see this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Okay, you know the story here that's shortly after the birth of Christ. Flee to Egypt. You know who's after him. You're about to find out here in case you don't. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, I just want to call a couple things to your attention. We're going to, I'm going to read a few more verses here. But I, if you're a note taker, just kind of call to attention that um, uh, in the story, but also Matthew points out, just brings up the word and the location, Egypt. Okay, Egypt is part of the story of Christ. Okay, Egypt is brought up, and then a, a reference to some event past. We don't know what this event was, do we? <laughs> I'm being facetious. Of course we know what event he's talking about. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's the story that I just summarized for you. 
Matthew is telling the story of Jesus and he's talking about something that happened 1,500 years earlier. Is he talking about Jesus or he's talking about Israel? And the answer is yes. He's retelling the story of Israel. Whether we have the story of Exodus on our mind as we understand the story of Christ or not, apparently Matthew does. And we're going to figure out why in a moment, why that's important. So let's continue reading. In verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by those wise men, or by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. I hope that that sounds a little familiar to you. Not only in that event, but maybe in something that might have happened 1,500 years earlier, as a little wee baby was launched off into a tiny little ark and launched into the Nile because the Pharaoh was trying to kill the, the firstborn of, Egypt, of, of Israel. I hope that sounds a little bit familiar to you. And that's another little note that you can make. You can add to this list. Uh, Matthew mentions Egypt. Matthew mentions a, a reference to out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew mentions the killing of all male, male children, just like a guy named Pharaoh some 1,500 years earlier. Look down at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now this little last little reference here might just sound like it's just part of the story, but actually in the original Greek, it points back to an old story in the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. That is almost verbatim. Okay, it's in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, where Moses is told when he's in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men seeking your life are dead. Okay, so we have three things we can draw out there. Four, really. Egypt is mentioned, second of all. Out of Egypt I called my son, a clear reference to the Exodus. Third, kill all the male children, just like Pharaoh did 1,500 years earlier. And then fourth, those who sought to kill the child's life, or sought the child's life, are dead. Okay, now, I'm going to go back to Matthew. If you're over there in Exodus, keep your finger in the book of Exodus and turn over to Exodus 14, but look over at Matthew chapter 3. I'm making a case for something here. We're going to try and get into the mind of Matthew. Try to figure out what Matthew's thinking, what he's referencing as he's making these mentions. Now, not just the mind of Matthew, but just the story itself. What might that be pointing to? Okay, in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, there's the familiar story of Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I, needed to be, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, now... A few things to draw out of there is this notion of baptism. If, if you've never connected the dot between baptism before or baptism and the crossing of the Red Sea before, I'd like for you to connect that dot this morning. Okay, Paul spoke that way when he talked about baptism, and he spoke about a baptism into Moses where he's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea by the nation of Israel. Okay, so we have baptism of Christ here. He's delivered through the watery ordeal. It doesn't sound like it's an ordeal. It doesn't sound real scary. It doesn't sound like the armies of Pharaoh are bearing down on him just yet. He's just being baptized in the Jordan. But just bring, if you will, that imagery. And included with Paul's reference to the nation of Israel being baptized into Moses. And I want to show you that Matthew is telling and retelling the story of Israel. Look back over there at the book of Exodus chapter 14. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You can really just look at the heading there and know exactly what happened, where the armies of Pharaoh are bearing down on the nation of Israel, and they cross the Red Sea in chapter 14. Okay, So I want you to see specifically, what I want you to see how this plays out is that God called his son out of Egypt, and then he delivered him through the watery ordeal. It's exactly what he did with Israel. That's exactly what he's doing there in Matthew. He called his son out of Egypt, and now in chapter 3, he baptizes him through the watery ordeal of the Jordan. Okay? Now look at Exodus chapter 19. 
Okay, there's three things that I'm building in here, and you're on the third thing. So you're, you're going the distance, so hang in there. And I actually have an image that I can, I can put up. Go ahead and put up that, that sixth slide so you can visualize this. Okay, we've got the same Sermon on the Mount right back here. About 1,500 years earlier, you have, uh, actually go back one slide. Yes, perfect. You have the Exodus, about 1,500 years. This is not the Red Sea. It's blue, and it's not a sea. It looks like a river. Okay, but you need to know the Red Sea really isn't even red. It's actually the Reed Sea, but it was translated, or they believe it was the Reed Sea. It was translated as the Red Sea. So we're going to play like this is the Red Sea. They cross as part of the Exodus. Really, this is all part of the Exodus. They cross the Red Sea uh, away from Egypt and cross on dry ground over to where they're going next. Okay, and you may have saw the, you may have seen the image, but we'll, we'll wait on that next slide until I read this passage. Okay, here's here's the next passage: Exodus chapter 19, verse three. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. And let's skip over to, to chapter 20. And God spoke all of these words from a mountain, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You know how the commandments go. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. He's a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath. Verse 12, you shall honor your father and mother. Verse 13, don't, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against one another. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your male servant, female servant, his ox, donkey, or anything that's in your neighbor's or that belongs to your neighbors. God's commands here on Sinai, okay, go ahead and put up that wee little mountain, okay, little tiny little mountain 1,500 years earlier. God's commands here are to a newly freed people, barely dry, okay? Now, I'm speaking metaphorically. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They didn't get wet. <laughs> but I'm speaking metaphorically as they, they're delivered from Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, and there they find themselves at the base of a mountain where God is speaking to them and giving them some commands. A bunch of newly freed people. Okay, I hope that things may be shaping up for you a little bit as you're kind of connecting some dots. I told you last week that Augustine actually is the first to name the Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Mount. See, to Augustine, some... Uh, 1,700 years ago, something like that, to Augustine, the location was very important. It says in Matthew chapter 5, the sermon begins with a very important point. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying a bunch of commands. In chapter 8, Chapter 8, verse 1, ends with him coming down the mountain. Whether we think it's important or not, apparently it's important to Matthew that he went up up a mountain to speak, and now he's coming down from a mountain. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came up to him. Geography matters to Matthew. Okay. So we're trying to make the point, or trying to figure out what the point Matthew is making. Is Matthew's pointing back to some event, this thing called the Exodus, and why might he be doing that? First of all, I want to reinforce that these aren't just stray data points. Okay, I do want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. Okay, the hardest work in the morning is, is in this section, in this first point. Okay, so if you're doing the work in this first point, you're going to go the distance. Okay, you can leave that up there for now, Ethan. Acts chapter 7. You can look at the heading there on Acts chapter 7 and see that this is a newly appointed deacon, a guy named Stephen, a deacon to the early church. Stephen is preaching. We don't, it's probably not his first sermon because it was so amazing. Apparently he was pretty good at preaching, but we know for sure it's his last sermon. You might say, well, it didn't go well. Actually, I think it went smashing. It went exactly like it was supposed to go. Okay, let's just consider some of what he has to say. I'm not even going to read the whole thing. I just want to point out in verse 9, in verse 9 of that chapter, he starts talking about the Exodus. Okay, this guy's preaching. He's been dragged out into the streets in Jerusalem. His Lord has just been crucified and is risen and now ascended. He was probably an eyewitness to all of the above, or at least was friends with buddies now, who saw all of the above. And he's going to preach a sermon, which he might have a suspicion, this is my first and my last sermon, or my last for sure, 
And he's going to talk about the Exodus? Hmm. In verse 9 of, of chapter 7, he starts talking about the Exodus. He doesn't stop talking about the Exodus until he gets all the way over to, let's see. Verse 51, he's even referencing the same language of the Exodus. What God said about this people. You're a stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. The majority of this sermon, I mean for many, many, many verses, is about the Exodus and about this guy named Moses. So whether it's important to us, it apparently is important to Matthew to make sense of the story of Christ in light of, and what Christ has to say and do, in light of this story of the Exodus. This thing that happened some 1,500 years earlier. And to Stephen, apparently, it's also a pivotal story. Here's a couple little glimpses into what Stephen had to say. Look at verse 25, just beginning actually for context in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He's speaking to Moses. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Okay, listen. I'm going to read that verse again because it's just glorious. There's a word for it. It's called irony. Here, Stephen is preaching a sermon in the same territory, the same city where his Lord was crucified. And he's going to preach a sermon about this Lord. And he tells a story about a guy 1,500 years earlier. And here's what he says about him. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Are you talking about Moses or are you talking about Jesus, Stephen? Yes. All right, if you're in the audience there, if you're listening to Stephen's sermon, you're kind of bristling at this point. You think he's talking about Moses, but you're kind of going, huh, I wonder if he's talking about Jesus. What's that say about us? He does it again in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. See, Stephen is preaching about Christ via and through the lens and the story of Moses. The irony in verse 25 is for the people who just crucified Jesus. He says, God was giving them salvation by his hand, and they instead are shouting, give us Barabbas. His blood be on us and on our children. In verse 35, more irony. Those who'd mocked Jesus as king of the Jews and nailed him to a cross. Hear the reminder from Stephen how Moses was rejected by his people in his role, and yet he too was ruler and redeemer. (laughs) Man, I'm just going to tell you right now, sometimes irony makes you laugh, and then sometimes it makes you mad. And that's what goes down here in this context where Stephen's preaching this sermon and he's referencing the story of Moses and making sense of the story of Christ, it makes them mad. It says that they are enraged. They ground their teeth at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Okay. (laughs) So here's the point. The Exodus and Moses had a prominent place in Stephen's sermon about Christ. And it does in Matthew's understanding of the gospel and the story of Christ. So here's what I want to ask you, people of God, this morning. Does the story of Exodus have any impact on your understanding of the gospel? I'm asking a very practical question, like a real question, not a hypothetical. I mean, you don't have to answer it out loud, but I really want you to answer it in your head. Does this thing that happened 1,500 years before Christ, 3,500 years ago for us, is it just a Bible story for the kids? Or is it how you make sense of the gospel and who Christ is and what he's done for us? I want to brag on our youth. Last week, Daniel uh, Donaldson was teaching in youth and gave out little cards to have them write the mission. What, what is a youth mission? Enduring faith and to live on mission. And they had to write it down. And the third thing, that was the first and the second, and the third thing, I think those, are, those were the first, the first two. And the third thing was, what do you want to learn? What do you want to learn this, these coming years? Because we're talking about building these modules, these things we're going to teach our youth in the next couple of years. And then reteach, reteach them the two years after that and the two years after that. 
And we're, we're getting feedback from youth parents. We're getting feedback from even the children. Right? I shouldn't say children. Even the youth of what they want to learn. And you know what was crazy about their cards? I don't know the one of them that was actually really like topical. They were all about what does the Bible say about stuff? Like what, what is the story of Paul was one of them. Our youth want to understand the story of Paul? Well, one of them said the Exodus. I want to understand the Exodus. Man, I don't know who that was. If he's in here or she's in here, you can sit here smug and knowing that God used you. That was, I was spot on because I hope your dad and your mom and your brothers and your sisters and everyone else in this room understands the importance of the story of the Exodus in making sense of the story of Christ. Okay. Now, you can turn all slides off. Okay, they're off. Good. Now, here's the point. Seeing Moses in Christ and the exodus in the gospel. What's this investment have to do with anything? The the time we've just spent. Seeing Moses in Christ and the exodus in the gospel identifies Jesus both as the Savior of his people in a way that you can almost touch and feel. I'm going to finish the rest of that sentence in a minute, but I want to start on touching and feeling. I don't know if anybody in here was actually a slave. But we can imagine what that would be like. Hundreds of years, potentially, of slavery, of making bricks. Calluses. You know what happens when you pick up a lot of heavy stuff. You get calluses. You can imagine the calloused hands of the Israelites, the nation of Israel. I don't know that it was just the men either. Can you imagine the, the straps across your back? Can you imagine the pain and suffering of slavery where they're calling out for hundreds of years potentially? God, where are you? The promise that you made to our forefathers, where are you? We're enslaved and we're suffering. This story of the Exodus helps us understand the feeling of slavery and hopelessness and helplessness. The feeling of making endless bricks without straw eventually along with the taskmaster's whip across your back. You can feel the enslavement. You can feel the hopelessness. You can feel the helplessness. And you can see that in their story, Moses was their redeemer. He was their savior. He was their deliverer. And seeing Moses now in Christ emphasizes Christ's important role in delivering us from real slavery. I want you to hear what I just said. From real slavery. Now, I thought you were talking real slavery back with those guys. No, that was but a shadow of the slavery that we live in. Slavery to sin and death and self. Man, that's just shadow. So as you feel the whip across your back, imagining the calluses on your hands and the enslavement. Anybody ever been stuck in a besetting sin that you can't get free of? whip across your back the hopelessness the helplessness can anybody relate to those sort of images man what I want you to see here in this beautiful connection I I save this verse I save this verse for right now Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 I want you to see what this has to do with the Sermon on the Mount this is just gorgeous I'm telling you this is beautiful Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Okay, Joseph is going to divorce Mary. He finds out she's pregnant. An angel appears to Joseph. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't know how you use the word from, but here's how I use the word from. If I'm going to drive from Greenville to Rockwall, I'm driving away from Greenville. From means I'm going from here to there. Now, here's what I want you to hear in this verse. That Jesus has delivered for those who are in union with him, for those who are trusting him, for those who have trusted him and have placed their faith in him. You have been delivered from sin and self and slavery to somewhere else. And this somewhere else is the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) It's this thing that you read that go, oh, I can never do that. 
I can never turn the other cheek. Yes, you can. You've been delivered from slavery to sin and self and death. You absolutely can live out the commands of the Sermon on the Mount. Because you're a newly freed people. That was but shadow. This is the substance. We're living in the substance. It was so beautifully illustrated in the Exodus. A shadow. as painful shadow. Man, we are walking in the substance. Augustine believed that the Sermon on the Mount was for those who Christ has set free by his love. Man, I'm telling you right now, people, this is the first point, the first half of the sermon. It's the hardest part of the sermon in, in terms of following. But here's, here's the point. If you, were, if you stuck with me this far, you got it right here. The followers of Jesus have gone through an exodus. That's, that's Matthew's point. And have been freed from sin and self to live out the righteous commands given us from the mount. God's commands to a newly freed people. It'll change the way you read the book. It'll change the way you hear the sermon. It'll change your approach to these unbelievably challenging commands where you go, oh, I've been free to obey. All right, here's the second part. Followers of Jesus are new creations. First of all, followers of Jesus have gone through an exodus. Followers of Jesus are new creations. Go ahead and put up that slide. Okay, I added in, just for the sake of context here, creation some point in time before the exodus. This is not going to get near the airtime that this, this first development did here, right here, but it factors into the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so we're just going to take just, for a, just a moment and consider creation. So turn back to Genesis chapter 2. This is going to move pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 2. But I want you to keep your finger over there in Matthew chapter 5. This is going to move quickly, and I, but I'll tell you this. This may be my favorite part of the sermon in these next few minutes. I'm pretty excited about it. Genesis chapter, you just be in chapter 1. You just be ready. Okay, at the beginning of the book of Matthew, this is not uh, something that you would, you would know unless you recalled the intro sermon. I think it may have been the intro sermon to the whole book of Matthew some time ago. Uh, the, the first verse of Matthew chapter 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy actually in Greek is the book of Genesis. Okay, Matthew starts his, his gospel about Jesus with the phrase, This is the book of Genesis of Jesus. Okay, Now that word, that phrase is only used two other places. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the genesis, or the generations, of Adam. Okay, so those are the only two other places in our entire Bible where that phrase is used. Matthew, apparently, starting out his gospel, is using creation language. Okay, that's not the only data point. Here's the other data point that I think is very important. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The earth is without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this word hovering and this, this picture of the Spirit, hovering was something that, that you would associate with birds. Okay, they didn't have planes back then, so they're going to associate it with birds. And they actually, in the ancient times, associated it with doves. In more modern times, they associate it with eagles. But at the time of the writing and the baptism of Jesus, they associated it with doves. So in the language of Matthew, the Spirit's descending like a dove. He may have well have said that he just hovered, just like he did at creation. He's using creation language and creation imagery. The Spirit hovered in chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, just like he did over here at Christ's baptism where the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so what's, what's the point here? Uh, I'm trying to imagine if Matthew had started the book with this phrase. Okay, A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Where would your minds go? Okay, we've had how many years of Star Wars? Clay didn't know. You didn't know. I could tell. You're like, he looked at Corey. Am I supposed to know this? 
Yeah, man, you're supposed to know all the Star Wars. I don't know all the Star Wars things. I just remembered it, that little scrolling thing at the beginning. I think it went this way, where it's scrolling, and come on, hurry up. A long, long, a long, long, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. If you started a story with that, you would automatically think about Star Wars. If you start a story, this is the genesis of something, you're going to automatically think back to creation language. And then you add in the baptism with the Spirit hovering and descending. Matthew seems to really be making the point that he's speaking about a recreation here. A recreative work. Thank you. So the first creation's over here, but there's a recreation work that Matthew seems to be making the point. So this is going to change the way you treat the Sermon on the Mount. Go back over to the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to show you how, how it's going to play out. Just for example, when you begin to think about this, this um, actually, actually stay, stay in Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see this. This is really good. Stay in Genesis chapter 2. But you can have your finger over there in Matthew chapter 5. This, is, this may be my favorite part of really any sermon ever. So I, I can't wait to share this with you. So, all right, hang in there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. You know the commands that were given um, at creation. Okay, creation number one. Okay, we've got a garden ethic, we'll call it. A garden ethic was given to Adam and Eve. Okay, and here's how that went down. In verse 13, excuse me, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, or you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you're like me, you probably, your mind goes directly to the commandment of thou shalt not eat from that tree. Okay, but I want to read this passage in a different way, in a way that you may have never read it before, because I want you to understand how, we're going to, how it's going to condition the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then here's the other commandment. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And we get stuck on that second one, don't we? Have you ever even noticed that it's a command to take and eat? A command to take and eat and enjoy a garden full of trees, fruit-laden trees? Have you read that passage your whole life? And go, I don't know, you're not supposed to eat. That's the commandment, don't eat from that tree. That the garden ethic was some in total, don't eat from that tree. That's missing out on the fact. It's like Adam and Eve and us standing in front of that tree and going, oh, man, this is really going to be a bummer. This is terrible. We've got this one tree we can't eat from because it looks pretty awesome. When you, All you got to do is turn around and go, what? what? Wait a minute. What? We have a garden full of trees here to eat from, and you just say we can't eat from that one? That changes the whole spirit of the garden ethic. It changes the spirit of how you see your father, too. If all you see is what Satan does, where he gets you to focus on that thou shalt not eat from that tree, if all you see is thou shalt not, then you begin to believe, ah, Father's just holding out on us. That's really the good stuff in there. That one tree is really the good stuff. That's really the good fruit, and everything else is kind of mediocre. But when you begin to see the rest of the garden ethic, there's no take and eat, a garden full of trees here in front of you. Oh, and by the way, don't eat from that one. It changes the whole spirit of the garden ethic. So now, let's take that garden ethic to Matthew chapter 5, and I just want to show you a few little examples of how then we'll treat this in light of the language of recreation. Matthew chapter 5, I want you to see this. The Sermon on the Mount serves as a new garden ethic. It serves, it serves as a new garden law. If this is the first creation and there's a garden law over here, there's a garden law over here. For a bunch of newly created people. Okay, in the Exodus, it's newly freed people. But in the creation story, this recreation, it's a newly created people. In Matthew chapter 5, here's how it plays out. You know, look, at, look over here at uh, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it said of old, to, you shall not murder, you shall not, uh, that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The point is, don't be angry. Don't be angry with your brother. Okay, that's that one tree. Don't be angry with your brother. Don't eat from that one tree and be angry with your brother. 
But it's a really appealing tree, isn't it? <laughs> because anger can become a good old friend, can't it? Like, man, it feels good to be angry. <laughs> I like to eat from that one tree. But instead, God says, you know what? I want you to eat from all these other trees instead. It changes the way you read the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of just being stuck on don't be angry with your brother, instead, eat from a garden full of trees by going and being reconciled to your brother. That's taking and eating and finding happiness in a garden full of trees. It changes the way you read the Sermon on the Mount. It changes the way you hear commandments, period. You don't hear them as restrictive. You hear them as, oh, that, that's, good. that's the good stuff. Here's another example. Thou shalt not look on a, on a woman with lust. Thou shalt not divorce except on the ground of sexual immorality. You see the connection there between lust and divorce through sexual immorality? Instead, look down the page, instead follow through on your oaths. Let your yes be yes. Enjoy the garden full of trees by following through on simple oaths. Let your yes be yes and enjoy the wife of your youth. And we get stuck on that one tree. Instead of repaying evil for evil or eye for eye or tooth for tooth, down in verse 38 through 45. That's a promising tree too, isn't it? Evil for evil, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's a promising tree. The vindication is really going to feel good, isn't it? When you get even with someone that's your enemy, it's going to feel so satisfying, isn't it? But it doesn't. That's that one tree that really just delivers death. Just like being angry with your brother, you're going to die if you carry around anger with your brother. You eat from that tree, man, you're going to experience a real death. Instead of repaying evil for evil, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and eating from that really promising tree that just doesn't deliver, enjoy a garden full of trees by turning your cheek, by giving your shirt and your jacket, by loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, and then you'll be like your Father in heaven, enjoying a garden full of trees that he's provided for you. Changes the way you read it. Enjoy a garden full of trees by giving to the needy, by praying to our Father in heaven, by fasting quietly and privately. Here's one that comes out of this passage. Thou shalt not lay up treasures on earth. That tree is tempting, isn't it? <laughs> There's not a person in the room that can't relate to that. That tree really says you're going to be so happy when you get that car. <laughs> You're finally going to be happy when you get that house. You're finally going to be happy when you get those new shoes, right? That tree, man, it has so many promises. But then dopamine, dopamine like flushes out of your system in a matter of seconds. And you're like, okay, next. <laughs> I felt that excitement that that tree promised for a moment when I'm laying up treasures on earth. But man, it just doesn't deliver. Just death. Just more death. Next, I once knew a guy that tried to do that with watches. You just get a new injection of dopamine on, onto the next watch. Order the watch. It shows up in the mail, tries it on. Ah, that's pretty cool. Next, that tree doesn't deliver. Instead of eating from that one tree that just doesn't deliver, that just provides death, eat from a garden full of trees by laying up treasures in heaven and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It'll change the way you read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, later on in the passage, it, it says, Thou shalt not go, the encouragement is, Thou shalt not go the wide, easy way with the many to the forbidden tree of lust, adultery, anger, getting even, laying up treasures in heaven, or, or, uh, treasures on earth, excuse me. Instead, enjoy the narrow way that few find with a garden full of trees as an otherworldly people who operate on and are guided by a completely different and contrary ethic called the Sermon on the Mount. That is a happy people. That's a people that are enjoying a garden full of trees as part of a recreative work called the gospel. Man, we talk about this new creation every single week. Have you connected it to this kind of stuff, that it actually should play out in how you live? That it actually should play out in what you hold dear? Here's what I think is really awesome about this second point. This new creation concept in the Sermon on the Mount, the Greco-Roman virtue ethics, they had a phrase. 
These, a lot of these guys use this phrase, actio sequitur esse. Acquio sector sequitur esse. It means action follows essence. You can imagine Socrates or Aristotle saying that. Action follows essence. They believed and taught what we do morally is the fruit of who we are. Okay, I want you to think about that for a minute. Lost pagan philosophers believed that right actions came from a change of essence. Just think on that for a minute. When we're talking new creation language and a new creation spirit that Matthew is bringing in and around this Sermon on the Mount, I want you to consider these guys that are in their context are using this phrase, action follows essence. It must have been a terrible discouragement for them to realize no matter how fine their philosophy, no matter how fine their philosophizing, they could not change their essence. As the Epicureans and the Stoics, the Hedonists are trying to follow their own teachings, they could not change who they were. But guess what? It's different for us. It's different for those who are in union with Christ. We, on the other hand, have a new essence. We, on the other hand, have been reborn from above through union with Christ. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Unless you are reborn... From above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We have become people of God, new creatures. That's why we can live out an otherworldly ethic. That even in our flesh looks at it and go, I can never do that. Yes, you can. You're free, you're newly freed, and you're a new creation. You absolutely can. And you absolutely should. It's who you are. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Man, I'm telling y'all, if y'all read the Sermon on the Mount and you really spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount where you're like, okay, let me just, let me just aim to do this, this one thing today. You're going to realize how awesome that news is. You're going to go, ah, I actually can't do that. Because I'm a new creation. That changes everything. All right, I'm going to leave you with a passage. And you can just sit back and listen. It's a familiar passage. I want to show you this just with a a visual. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Just listen. Listen how the story goes. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were slaves to sin and self and death. And Paul, just in case somebody thought he was just talking about Gentiles, he said, and we too, us Jews... All once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the sweetest two words in the Bible. But God made us alive together with Christ, being, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. There it is, recreation. I'm glad Matthew is seeing the story of Christ through the lens of creation. I'm glad he's seeing the story of Christ through the lens of Exodus. Are you? Man, it's great news. It makes total sense. He made us alive together with Christ. Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 10. As a result of all this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There it is. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You want to know what the good works that you've been called to that you've been prepared for look like? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just keep it really simple. Read the Sermon on the Mount. 
and say, Lord, work this in me. Work this in me. Thank you, first of all, for already redeeming this, already winning this in me through the cross. Thank you for being the new and better Moses and freeing us from slavery to sin and self and death. Man, that'll change the way you read the Sermon on the Mount. That's music behind the lyrics. Let's pray.